time to start. Good afternoon. I'd like to start with uh, two poems. One was uh, written a thousand years ago, recently translated into English. It was written in by an abbot of a Christian monastery at the time of the first millennium, figuring in Anno Domini. And of course, there was a lot of uh, wondering of what would happen uh, a thousand years after uh, the beginning of the uh, Christian path. And uh, then as for the next, much of the next uh, thousand years, there was the borrowing from the um, metaphor we were using yesterday. There was a projection of the divine, the sacred, our sense of the sacred, up onto a great uh, glory God and all power and all, uh, omnipotence and omniscience and all glory uh, were projected there. And we were talking yesterday about how the larger story of humanity can, can be sort of seen and experienced as a heartbeat of pulsing of projection and introjection, retrieving the projection, putting the sacred out there to the point where uh, it, the, our own lives seem denuded of the sacred and then bringing it back and so forth. So the fact that it was, uh, this was the a dominant uh, religious experience and expression of the time, it makes it all the more startling to read this uh, verse by this abbot who was named Simeon, the new theologian. <coughs> we awaken in Christ's body as Christ awakens our bodies. And suddenly my poor hand is Christ, and he enters my foot and is infinitely me. I move my hand, and wonderfully my hand becomes Christ, becomes all of him. For God is indivisibly whole, seamless in the Godhead. I move my foot, and at once he appears like a flash of lightning. Do my words seem blasphemous? Then open your heart to Christ and let yourself receive the one who is opening to you so deeply. For if we genuinely love him, we wake up inside Christ's body where all our body, all over, every hidden part of it is realized in joy in him. And he makes us utterly real. And everything that is hurt, everything that seemed to us dark, harsh, shameful, maimed, ugly, irreparably damaged, is in him transformed and recognized as whole and lovely and radiant in his light, we awaken as the beloved in every last part of our body. You will not be surprised that he was immediately removed from his <laughs> monastery by the Vatican or probably even closer authorities. He was living in Anatolia along the 
Mediterranean coast of Turkey and put, sent to a uh, hidden away fishing village to the end of his days. Fortunately, was not burned at the stake as others who would dare to speak that kind of heresy. Many were, you know. But what audacity. As we look back now from our apprehensions of the sacred as we're learning, as, as our planet people have been, and especially in our time, retrieving that sense of the sacred to re-sacralize and open our hearts and minds and imaginations to the world around us, to be able to even sing praises to our world and not see it as some second-rate, hand-me-down kind of world. So I want to read this poem again, as we might put it, a thousand years later, to express what we are, thanks to poets, thanks to scientists, thanks to the new cosmologists, uh, being able to express uh, the recognition that we are alive in a living planet. I'm only going to change two words in the whole poem. We awaken in Earth's body as Earth awakens our bodies. And suddenly my poor hand is Earth. And she enters my foot and is infinitely me. I move my hand and wonderfully my hand becomes Earth, becomes all of her. For our planet is indivisibly whole, seamless in her planethood. I move my foot, and at once she appears like a flash of lightning. Do my words seem blasphemous? Then open your heart to our earth and let yourself re receive the one who is opening to you so deeply. For if we genuinely love her, we awaken inside earth's body where all our body, all over, every hidden part of it is realized in joy as her, and she makes us utterly real. And everything that is hurt, everything that seemed to us dark, harsh, shamed, maimed, ugly, irreparably damaged, is in her transformed and recognized as whole and lovely and radiant in her light, we awaken as the beloved in every last part of our body. <coughs> and the second poem that I begin with today uh, is not so much a poem as a kind of uh, meditation from the other side of the planet, from uh, Aboriginal Australian, from Kakadu, Big Bill Nige. And he and his people, he's a direct descendant carrier for uninterrupted 40,000 years of uh, a way of uh, this way of seeing the world as a living body and he part of it. Well, I'll tell you about this story. Tree, grass, star. Because star and tree working with you, we got blood pressure. But same thing, spirit on your body. Listen carefully this. 
You can hear me. I'm telling you, earth just like mother and father or brother of you, that tree, same thing. Your body, my body, I suppose I'm same as you, anyone. Tree working. When you sleeping and dreaming, tree working. If you in city, well, I suppose a lot of houses, you can't hardly look this star. But when one night you might, you might look, see this star. Have look star because that's the feeling. Strings, blood through your body. That star, he work in there with you, see? He's working, I can see. Some of them small, you can hardly see. Always at night. If you lie down, look carefully. He work and see. When you sleep, blood, he pumping. I love that tree, because he loves me too. That tree watching me, same as you. Tree, he working with your body. My body, he working with us. Even while you sleep, he's working. Daylight when you're walking around, he work too. That tree, grass, that all like your father, dirt, earth. I sleep with this earth. Grass, just like your mother. He goes on. And somewhere in us, that knowledge is there because most of our journey as humanity, it is my hunch that we knew that. And we're awakening to it now with so much uh, help. Getting help from the artists and poets and help from the astro astronauts. Help from those who went up with Apollo 11 and saw the Earth and Apollo 13. Help from the images we can see of our Earth. Help from the voices of our uh, spiritual paths and ancestors. The mystics, they know it. And boy, do we need it now. Because the forces that tell us that we're needy and small and separated and isolated are very powerful. And what we're doing to the body of Earth scares us too. So I want to talk about uh, today uh, two things. I want to talk about choice, the choice that is ours uh, to take action, that intention to serve that springs naturally when we find our home in the lap of Prajnaparamita or realize our connectedness with each other, that automate, automatic response that comes up so easy and strong. And I want to talk about time. Remember I told you when we talked about uh, gratitude that uh, that's that first act you do as in, on a spiritual path, on a spiritual practice period to give thanks and that in Tibetan Buddhism there's that reflection, preliminary reflection, the very first one of how rare and how precious is a human life. And that this was not because we're better than the other life forms. 
know. Because consciousness runs all through, all through them all. But for humans, it's consciousness that comes with a very uh, complex brain that's grown up, where automatic, instinctual response of trial and error isn't going to work. So where we have to, there's so many possibilities of what we could do this, or we could do that, or I could stay home, or I could go out, or I could go to school, or I could shoot myself, or I could do whatever. And that uh, you have to you sort of move to a higher level of uh, where you can look down at the choices and say, well, I could do this, but not that, and there, and you picture and you find that you are required to and are capable, because that comes together, the need and the ability to make choices. So that choice-making, which in today's science we call self-reflexive consciousness, and in the uh, Tibetan Buddhist reflection I mentioned is caused that the humans can change the karma. You can choose to do something differently. This is the amazing thing that no matter what situation we're in, how many stupidities we have committed, we might be entrapped in, how bleak the outlook is, we can always choose our response. We can't choose the circumstances, we cannot make them different, but we can choose how we're going to respond to them. So we have uh, that, the Buddha, in, from the, in the very earliest uh, scriptures saw that as really the key characteristic of mind and the key uh, capacity where if you're looking for a self, that's where you find it, is how you choose. And you get a chance to practice that in your uh, sitting practice. In meditation, you sit committing to keeping your mind on the breath or on being mindful and noting what comes up mindfully and not just get on a train of mindless thought, fall into a trance, but to know. And how long does that last? Whoa. Waste not very long, and you find yourself carried away. But then, and because the mind likes to run around, doesn't it? So we notice it, and we choose to come back. So it's not a terrible thing to lose mindfulness, because it gives you, and perhaps is the whole point, a chance to practice intention. Come back to where you intend to be. Noting. Mindful awareness. Back to the breath. Back to the mantra or what you've chosen as your base of practice. That's a beautiful thing. To make friends with and grow in awe of this capacity to choose this intention. The Buddha called it chetana. And it was sort of used interchangeably with who you are. Who you are is a changing thing. It's not like the some uh, separate, eternal, unchanging, Self, that's why you couldn't buy into that. But 
if you want to look where you are, it's in that act of intending, choosing. And so when you are, are experiencing a kind of opening to, an opening to, and, and have homecoming to, a sense of the sacred reality that is our living earth that we can think of as the mother of all Buddhas, then the natural response is to want to choose to act on behalf of that, act in service to that. The response is one of stepping forward, reaching out, Because you've got her at, the, at your back. Whether you think of her as the rainforest, as John C. did in that story I was telling you about him, or whether you're thinking of her as the tree Luna, as Julia Butterfly Hill experienced as she was having her life and mind transformed in her two years sitting 150 feet up in the air on that redwood in, called Luna. But that being held in a larger sacred reality impels a natural desire to act on its behalf. And that motivation, that motivation is seen as so precious in the early scriptures and in the teachers I met with. Oh, those Tibetans were telling me, this is this bodhicitta. It's like a flame in the heart. It's the most precious thing. It doesn't matter what else you lose in this life. You don't want to lose that. That's your treasure. That shows you your way. I've come to say, yeah, they're right. But I didn't always think that. You know, for a long time, I thought that my motivation wasn't nearly as important as my effectiveness. I thought, oh, of course I'm motivated. I want to serve life, of course. But what matters is how effective I am, the kind of results I can produce, who I can sign up, the laws I can get past, or whatever. But as the years went on, and especially understanding how systems work, I realized, wait a minute, we can't tell how effective we are. The avenues of influence are so subtle and interconnected. They're things that you say. They're things that you have done that people have noticed. They're things that you've written. They're comments you've made offhand that have had an impact on people. You will never have a clue. That's true for all of us. Just think of people who have had a big impact on you. Do they know that? A lot of them are dead. (laughs) Maybe a thousand years ago. Because Simeon, the new theologians, had a big impact on me, and he'll never know it as Simeon. So I've learned to kind of give up on figuring out how effective I am. Boy, does that save you a lot of energy. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, all that pulse taking. Oh, how effective am I today? Give it up. No way to know. But if you lose the motivation, if you lose the intention, life becomes just like a dried rag. It's that intention that puts wind in your sails. Or to use another metaphor, it's the seasoning of life. Jesus spoke of that when he said, and if the uh, salt shall lose its savor, what shall we, you know, he compared that to uh, the Holy Spirit, the sense of the sacred. If you lose that, you know, all is flat and dull and dreary and already, in a way, already lost. So this intention. And then, in a way, I'm just thinking now, it's, it's, that's a little close to what my co-author, Chris Johnstone, and I discovered in uh, writing Active Hope. And that's one of the books that will be here if you want one. Um, that hope isn't something you have. It's something you do. And if it's something you do, it's something you're motivated to do. It's a result you'd like to achieve. Then you can have active hope even when you're feeling hopeless. So watch out for this culture, particularly in America, in the U.S., there, this um, obsession with optimism. <laughs> What's so great about optimism? <laughs> or pessimism. Those are just feelings. They come and go. Often they depend on what you've had for breakfast or what somebody's just said to you on the phone. Oh, there I go again. No, it's just what, it's what you do. It's what you see that's worth doing and your commitment to act on it. So let us make a vow here and now to free ourselves from needing to be uh, optimistic and hopeful and constantly taking our pulses to how optimistic we are. That's a great freedom. You ready for it? Yes. Reach for the sky. A. Hey. Phew. You are the royal order of free uh, <laughs> active hopers. Yeah, it's that step you take, that feeling, the wind of that bodhicitta as you act. And what's so great about these, um, how this, the mother of all Buddhas avoids this um, hierarchical view of either the sacred or the spiritual path is that um, she includes what's here as well as what's here. And we've been uh, practicing that. And we will continue to do that. And that action and I gave action and wisdom, just like the two weapons of the Shambhala warrior, or where they are, the bell and the dorji. She's the bell, wisdom, and the dorji, compassionate action. They are equally important. They are like two expressions. They're the two wings of the bodhisattva, the two hands of the Shambhala warrior. 
and hands, as I say, that knead each other, that inform each other, just like it's very hard to wash a hand by itself. So as we look to how we uh, want to act for our earth and in this time, Thank you. I have a feeling I could be. And there's a choice even in how we understand what's happening to our world. Thank you. I know. I could. We could do a little comedy routine. That's all right. You know, it's so incredible anyway that we can even be together for a moment in the flesh. With Simeon, the new theologian. <laughs> so, uh, there are three stories that uh, occur to us that pretty much cover the ways to understand the planetary world scene right now of what humans are doing and what's happening. And those three are uh, business as usual, the great unraveling, and thirdly, the great turning. And these have been so helpful to us and in our work that I want to share them with you. So for business as usual, this story is what you hear in this country the most. Government leaders, the politicians, Everybody running for office, pretty much at least in the federal government, and most state government, not local, but fortunately. And uh, what you hear from the uh, corporate CEOs and what you hear from the military and the arms industry and is what you hear from the media is this story. This story is the story of... Uh, that everything's okay as it is. All we need to do is be sure we get the resources that we need. And back to growing the economy. 
So that covers just about everything. That means you have to consume, that means you have to extract what you want from the earth, and that means you have to be ready to go to war. And so we use this phrase, name for this, from a Norwegian industrial growth society because that pretty much says it. It's driven by industrial power, and the operative term is growth, that it is committed to growth in what? Wisdom? Health. Longevity. Fertility. One thing only. What? And whose money? Yeah. So it's, it's uh, and this is how you can see that it's doomed to fail as a system. Because even in, right in the operations of a corporation, right in the economy, it's what economist David Corton, great teacher of mine, calls a suicide economy because one of the variables always tra trumps all the others. We may talk about a triple bottom line of uh, sustainable environment and social equity and profits, but the profits always trump the others. And so when you have a system where one variable always wins out, it can't stay in balance. It goes into runaway, into oscillations, more and more, and heading toward collapse. So uh, this is a doomed society, but boy, is it achieving a lot of destruction on the way. And uh, this is, uh, has to extract and mine. Uh, and in Naomi Klein's last book, have you anybody aware of it? Yeah, that great book, This Changes Everything. And dramatizes in it, the, it how we're being driven by this race to keep growing at any cost, to grab the land wherever it is, take it right <laughs> out from under the indigenous people or the farmers. And mine it, and it doesn't matter what you do with the waste and the toxins. It doesn't matter as long as you can keep the end. So there's a quality of a kind of madness of the sorcerer's apprentice about this now that you must be feeling, because most of us feel it somehow in our bones. You know that, there's a, that we're on thin ice and that there's this hurrying tempo, because it's going faster and faster as required, because the corporation has to make more profits than the last quarter to do whatever to keep up its um, market share. And this um, makes for very, very short-term thinking. The story is told of how people from Rainforest Action Network figured out that Mitsubishi, that at the time was harvesting a lot of the whales, could still harvest whales, but a fewer less, and allow the species to survive. And they went to Japan to lay out, you could still do this, and you'd still make a profit, and see. And they said, we understand, said the officials who uh, they were appealing to. But we can't afford to do that. We understand what you mean, but we can't. Because and once we, we've, uh, what's the word they use? Not eradicated, but, but once this resource is no longer there, we just turn to another resource. Because there's, it's a mad logic in this growth. So that's the first story. We'll just call it um, that. And the second story, that's business as usual. 
The second story is the story that's seen, the reality that's perceived by the uh, scientists who haven't been bought and the journalists who haven't been bought and the activists. And that is the story of the, we could call the great unraveling. This too is a phrase of uh, David Corton, economist and business school teacher. And I like it because it conveys what happens to living systems. They don't fall over dead. They unravel. They begin to lose their complexity, lose their memory. It's like getting Alzheimer's. Cultures, species, bioregions, ecosystems, unraveling. At an absolutely colossal cost, beyond, beyond our imagining. And oh, dear ones, dear sisters, I think that we're aware of it, don't you? Because there is this web of life that sustains us. And when our, sometimes it feels as if our bodies know it before our minds want to agree to that. And it wells up in the kind of uh, tension and grief and projections against other people and our own uh, uh, and the animosities that drive us against each other too. The uh, psychology of awareness of the great unraveling, that'll be a very interesting for those of you in graduate school or psychotheology or there. And it was speaking in our truth mandala. And we have to let it speak. Tomorrow we're going to do some exercises about talking to people who are hard to talk to and about the world and about our concerns, expressing our concerns and hopes. And we'll see how important it is to find a point which helps where people can stop trying to hide it and just allow for a moment the grief to come up. Oh, one comes to me just now. Quite a while back, I was on a plane to Boston. So it was quite a long ride. And my seatmate was a fellow going to Washington. And so I guess we were going to Washington where I used to live. And, uh, but he was in, under contract to the military because he was representing a security, uh, actually, and, and uh, systems and weapon systems. And so... I was able to, I had the time and felt obliged. <laughs> I thought, I've got to. I didn't want to. I thought, little poor guy, let him have it. But no, I felt that I had to be a good Girl Scout and raise questions about our budget or about the arms race or about, and, uh, and he had, you know, if you keep it at a, factual level, often you can just, that's not where it really is. And so it just became tiresome. And I, we lapsed into silence. And he, I knew that he was as committed to what was supporting himself and his family as he ever was. And as the plane started down uh, to the airport in Washington, I uh, just a feeling of such sadness came up for me 
for us all. And I turned to him and I said, it's hard, isn't it? And he said, oh, you don't know the half of it. He said, when I look at my kid and see what we're preparing, it's beyond words terrible. So it seems our world needs to cry. And he had a kind of moment of it. So it's almost beyond us, as I was saying here. But there's a third story. And the third story, I guess I'll draw in green. And that's the story of a transition to that's underway to a life-sustaining society. I don't, I'm getting so tired of the word sustainable. <laughs> but life-sustaining. Because sometimes business use is sustainable as if they're thinking of sustaining their profits, you know. <laughs> but life-sustaining. And that this transition is epical. It is huge. And it really takes attention to become aware of it because it is ignored as much as it possibly can be ignored by the media of uh, business as usual. So you have to uh, keep your ear to the ground and you have to know where to look in the journals and on internet and the folks that you're working with. Isn't that so? <coughs> Don't count on the New York Times. <laughs> Don't count on the San Francisco Chronicle. Don't count. Yeah. But there are now, and, and around the world, there are people from all walks of life from the Via Campesino to those in South India, whole villages are blocking the nuclear power plant, to the people gathering from uh, all uh, countries at the uh, uh, summits, the world summits for true activists. There's so much happening. And we're going to look at how we identify that. But I want to just note, because it can say, oh, well, yes, of course, there are people trying their best, there are people, you know, but it's like spitting in the wind. And, <laughs> but there are social thinkers that have had a big impact on me. Call it the most important, see it as a revolution. And equally important to two other revolutions. One was in the late Neolithic, 10,000 years ago. And what revolution was that when we settled down? Agriculture. Yeah, the agricultural revolution. That changed everything. It changed how we related to the earth, to work, to each other. And then a whole bunch later was a revolution, came a revolution, and that was just 300 years ago, less than that in England, and that was the Industrial, the Industrial Revolution. And that changed everything hugely with the need for uh, consumption and production and monetization and the reaching out for a colonial acquisition of markets and materials. And right on the heels of that, so it's just in time, it's so short, comes this. And so uh, these thinkers call this equally important, the third revolution. And the people who are living in time of a revolution are the last ones to realize it. But it helps. It helps for us to know that we're part of something so mammoth. 
And Lester Brown of the World Watch Institute calls it the ecological revolution. And my systems teacher, Dana Meadows, called it a sustainability revolution. And William Ruckelshaus, the first director of the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, this was back almost 40 years ago. He said, the revolution that is needed and that is starting in our time is fully as mammoth as, that wasn't the word, as big as in magnitude and scope as the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution. And this time, it has to happen. It's different in two ways from the other revolutions he pointed out. First, it has to happen in a few years. And secondly, it has to be chosen. It has to be conscious in order for that to happen. So, congratulations. This is the time you just got born in. Yeah. And maybe you chose it. And maybe you feel at times that you wish you hadn't. But this is a time where you're going to, and we all are going to discover our capacities of heart and mind and our courage and our readiness to respond and to lead. And that feeling of acting on behalf of the whole is which we name and the, in the Buddha Dharma sees as bodhicitta. It's interesting in that book I've been mentioning, Active Hope, my co-author's not, nothing to do with the Buddha's path, but he wanted two words kept in this, this book. One was bodhisattva. It's easier to say that in one word than to say uh, the um, person who understands that all life is radically interconnected. <laughs> That's all in one word. And bodhicitta, he kept too. It's easier to say that than the motivation to act on behalf of the whole. But please, let's find some other words for that and songs for that. Because it is so beautiful. And it touches, I believe, right to the heart of the transformation in our time. That so many people around the globe are acting for something far bigger than their self-interest as it had been, has been described for them. They're acting on behalf of the earth or on behalf of the Great Mother or on behalf of the Great Web of Life. I hope you get chills thinking about that because I think it is epical. And I think that you are going to help that deepen and vitalize through your own smarts and audacity. So there are different names for it, but what a lot of us are calling it is the great turning. And that word has been a cultural meme around for the last uh, three decades or so, but where I heard it first was in deep time exercises in my study action group around nuclear uh, waste. And as we played, we would play the part of future beings. Talking back to present day beings, you're gonna get a dose of this this afternoon. And then uh, we would uh, say, oh, back in the great turning. You in the great turning. This is of the, in these first decades of the uh, 21st century. So it's as if, if there is, if there are, will be humans 
who can look back on our time, who are not just scattered and living in caves, but have a cultural memory of what's happening in our time. This is how we imagined in our strategic role playing that they would see it, the time of the great turning. And over the years in the work that I do, we have seen what helps us see the great turning is to uh, glimpse it in three arenas of activity. And I'll just put them up there. They're mutually supporting each other. And they broaden our sense of what activism is. One of the areas of the great turning that comes immediately to mind for us, what we usually think of as activism, is uh, all the actions to stop or slow down the great unraveling, the destruction being wrought by the industrial growth society. So that's all the political, legislative, regulatory, uh, judicial. Uh, that's all uh, direct actions, boycotts, blockades, civil disobedience. And we call those, because mostly, you see, most of them end up in defeat, frankly. But they do manage to save some lives and uh, save some species and maybe even some ecosystems. So we call these holding actions. So that's what the, all these wonderful actions to close the tar sands, to stop the pipelines, uh, to uh, uh, um, stop investments, fossil fuel investments, and so forth, Div the divestment movement. These are all to slow it down, and this is crucially important, but it's only part of it, that what needs to be done. Because even if these succeeded, which is hard to imagine, um, we wouldn't have necessarily a life-sustaining society because we have to have different ways of doing things. We have to have different ways of holding the land. We have to have different ways of growing the food and sharing the food and electing our, and self-governing and different ways of uh, teaching and different ways of measuring wealth and different ways of organizing production and distribution of goods and different ways of, well, that's happening. These different ways are coming up like green shoots through the rubble of a dysfunctional civilization. So many of them. And we call these this transforming the foundations, the social economic foundations of our common life. Transforming agriculture. Transforming the so-called correctional system. Transforming our schools. Transforming our electoral processes and funding. And I think there's never been a time in human society where so many new ways, ingenious new ways, of doing things are happening as now. Mostly right there on the local level. It's on the local level that you're going to find this. 
I don't know why it's that. I guess as people go up the ladder in political life, they get bought off. I don't know. What am I pretending I don't know? Um, <laughs> but you know, these, these uh, new ways of doing things and new structures are not the ant not going to solve the whole thing either because they're going to shrivel and die unless they are deeply rooted in our uh, beliefs and visions and perceptions of reality. How we see and know our world. And this third one then that's as necessary as the others is a shift in consciousness. And when I think of perhaps where, because this means both a scientific revolution fitting into this, understandings of the brain just as Anna was drawing on in her teachings this morning about what we can learning now from neurology and also from spiritual paths. There's a spiritual, including indigenous voices, coming now. And what is maybe right at the central arising there uh, in this shift in consciousness is a realization, an experience of the earth is alive. We have the scientific data for it. We have the spiritual practices for it. And it's coming through. And that can, and the if this, as living parts of this living whole, we find ourselves, everything we know and are dependent on it. And so, in that case, for this living whole is for us sacred. So we wake up to being part of a sacred living earth. That means that we're already there. We're already home. We all know whether we can pull off the great turning. Which of these, the great turning, the great unraveling, is going to have the last word? It's looking pretty dicey now. What's going to happen first? That we lose the capacity to cohere in these living biological organic systems? Or that uh, the great turning can catch hold? We don't know. We live, there's no way for us to know. So we live with that uncertainty. But even with that uncertainty, there is a realization and we can allow that. And we can let it be just a passing thought, oh, a little poem. Oh, a poem, you know, a tree is lovely as a poem. You know, or you can let it grip you. You can let it come alive. You can let this new realization that our planet is real and alive become a part of saving her. But even if you can't, you're already home. So the uncertainty, I always stress it, because that uncertainty seems necessary to our being fully present. 
it seems necessary to our courage and to our creativity. If I or somebody were able to persuade you, everything's going to be okay. Don't worry. It'll be all right. (laughs) Would that draw out the full measure of your courage and creativity? And some really says it was too late. That is so boring. (laughs) So in this uncertainty, we also know if I can say this without crying, that there is nothing, nothing that can happen to us that will ever separate us from the living body of earth. Nothing. She is in us, of us, we in her. And she is ready to act through us. And we are ready to be in service. And it cheapens the whole drama of it to say, and then it'll be fine. (laughs) We may wind up before firing squads the way things are going. A lot of people are. But we're discovering, like waking up from an amnesia, who we really are. And what is more beautiful than that? So... Let's uh, take our time in moving into pairs. We'll just do a few open sentences around the great turning and the great unraveling. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.